0: Open your Bibles this morning to Proverbs chapter 30, Proverbs chapter 30, and let me use yesterday's proverb that was sent to your homes and to many homes around the world to introduce our subject. We want to consider the subject of truth this morning and this evening, and let's use the prayer of Agur. From Proverbs chapter 30, a couple of verses here. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 2, verses 7 through 9. Two things have I desired of thee. Deny me them not before I die. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full and deny thee and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. This is a godly and spiritual prayer. Verse 7 describes his fervency in requiring of the Lord two things. And he said, I need those two things soon before I die. My life is short. I need your blessing in these two things. And the two things are simple. They're found in verses 8 and 9. First thing, remove far from me vanity and lies. Do not let me look at, do not let me be enticed by the vain world that's around me. Do not let me believe that the things they value are important. And get rid of all lies lest I believe them. Save me from vanity and lies. And then his second prayer request, found in verse 8, give me neither poverty nor riches. He asked for only a moderate degree of success and prosperity in life because he points out the two dangers of either prosperity or poverty. Prosperity can cause you to be puffed up to where you would have little need for the Lord. Too much poverty might cause you to cheat on the Lord and take His name in vain. But what we want to focus on is the first few words of verse 8. Remove far from me vanity and lies. The reason we have assembled it as a church, the reason we have not just joined another church in Greenville County, it's not as if there aren't enough churches in our county. There's over 400 Baptist churches in our county. Surely we can find one. We're not content with what they offer. Because we believe God has called us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Amen. And let's turn to John chapter 4 and see those words of the Lord Jesus Christ as He addressed them to the woman of Samaria. Right. We believe that truth is absolutely essential to worshiping God. The Bible tells us that. He is a God of truth and His Word is truth. The Lord Jesus Christ is truth and no lie is of the truth. Right. So we cannot compromise... In how we worship Him. He does not give an A for effort. He gives an A for truth. If you're giving your best effort, He's going to show you the truth. And then it will be your choice of whether you're going to obey it or not. And He has graciously shown us His truth. Let's make sure we obey it so that we keep it. John chapter 4. The Lord Jesus Christ speaking to the woman of Samaria. He's not very kind to her or to his own people, as he describes true religion. I'll Let's begin at verse 20, where she is explaining her religious difference from the Jews. John chapter 4 and verse 20. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman... Believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Amen and amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. The woman knew that she was not a Jew. She knew that her religion was inferior to the Jews, but she had been raised all her life, believing that in this mountain where the Samaritans worshipped was the place to worship God. She knew that difference, and she admitted it to the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ quickly said, woman, believe me. The hour is coming that neither in this mountain is the Father going to be worshipped, nor at Jerusalem, because I'm going to level it. But in Greenville, South Carolina, there will be some that worship me in spirit and in truth. And in other places around the earth. Because God's true religion was not tied to a place. It was not tied to the city of Jerusalem, nor to the mountain in which the Samaritans worshipped. Because God is seeking someone that will worship Him spiritually, not tied to a place, not tied to a temple, not tied to the outward ceremonies of Israel's ceremonial worship, but the internal worship of spirit and the internal worship of truth. And that is what God expects. Because notice verse 23, The hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers, that means there's false worshipers, But the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. They will be in all sorts of places, neither in the Samaritan mountain nor in the city of Jerusalem. They'll be all over the earth, but they'll be worshiping in truth. And that is what the Father seeks. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Amen. Many today want to say that as long as you're trying to worship Him, as long as you say you're worshiping Him, then it's acceptable worship. But here we have the words of Jesus Christ about His Father in Heaven, that for worship to be acceptable and for the worshipers to be true worshipers, they must worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And that's what we want to consider this morning. This study shouldn't cause us pride. This study should humble us on our dependent ignorance. Because if it were not for the grace and mercy of God showing us the truth, we would not have any truth. If it were not the grace and mercy of God moving our hearts to love the truth, we would not love the truth. We could believe a lie as fast or faster than anyone else if it were not for the grace of God. It shouldn't cause us pride It shouldn't puff us up as being superior. It should cause us to love. The Bible says, knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. We don't want to be puffed up, but I'll tell you, we're never going to apologize for the truth either. We don't see Elijah apologizing for the truth at Mount Carmel, do we? When 450 prophets of Baal started praying and prayed all day long, Elijah wasn't very nice to them. Elijah made fun of their God and he made fun of their worship. He said, it's not quite loud enough because your God may be on a journey and he may be sleeping. So you need to get a little louder. And so they cut themselves a little deeper and screamed a little louder. But there was no answer. Right? There was no answer. Abraham, Elijah was not a proud man because he made fun of Baal worshippers. Elijah was a humble man because he humbled himself before the God of heaven and had no fear of man. It takes a special man to take on 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the groves all at once when the whole nation is just standing there saying neither yea or nay. That's hard. And that is not pride on Elijah's part. That's humility and obedience to the Word of God. He knew there was a God in heaven. And so he said, how long halt ye between two opinions? If Baal's God, then serve Him. If the Lord is God, then serve Him. But don't halt in the middle. There wasn't a word from the people. How long did his prayer take? About 30 seconds, if you drag it out. About 30 seconds, and fire fell from heaven. And that fire fell from heaven, it not only burned up the sacrifice, the Bible tells us it burned up the stones, It burned up the dust, and it burned up the water that was poured over it and around it. Praise His great and glorious name. It is not pride, it is not arrogance, to stand for the God of the Bible. It's humility and the fear of the Lord and proper obedience. He seeks such to worship Him that will worship Him in truth. And if the God of heaven is true, then the God of the Muslims is not true. And we're going to say that. And we're going to preach that. We're going to defend it. And we're going to expect our children to believe that. That's what the Lord wants us to do. Truth is important. It's absolutely essential, according to John 4, in order to worship the Father. Let us turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. This is a humbling passage of Scripture. This very week, I have dealt with someone who stubbornly resisted the explanation of the first 15 verses of this chapter. The last two verses of the Old Testament read something like this. Behold, I send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Those are the last two verses of the Old Testament. Behold, I send Elijah the prophet. Now, when we come into the Gospels of the New Testament, we find a man that bursts forth on the scene before the Lord Jesus Christ. And his name was John the Baptist. Now, in Matthew 11, the first 15 verses, Jesus teaches plainly that John the Baptist was the prophesied Elijah. Elijah. Now, see, prophets didn't always say things plainly, and the Bible tells us that. Prophets used similitudes. They don't use plain language. Malachi 4 or 5 doesn't say, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, I'll send John the Baptist. They wouldn't have known who John the Baptist was. They wouldn't have been even been able to conjure up the wildest idea in their heads. But to say Elijah the prophet, they knew that there was a man coming that was going to be fearless, and he was going to preach the Word of God, and he was going to be a wild man, and an unusual man, and he would have a wild message. And he did. He prepared the way of the Lord. But these verses all tell us that John the Baptist fulfilled the prophecy of Elijah the prophet. Look at verse 14. This is Jesus, our Lord, speaking. And if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. Now, Elias, E-L-I-A-S, is what happens to Elijah when it comes into the Greek language of the New Testament and then into the English of our King James Bible. Elias is Elijah. And Jesus is explaining in that 14th verse, John the Baptist is Elijah the prophet that was prophesied to come in the last two verses of the Old Testament. If ye will receive it. If ye will receive it. But men today won't receive it. They do not want that prophecy fulfilled so simply by the ministry of John the Baptist because it breaks down their left behind fantasies about all these events coming in the future. They cannot allow that to happen. They still think Elijah's coming. Literally Elijah. Oh no, Jesus explained it to us right here in Matthew chapter 11. If ye will receive it, but most men won't receive it. This is Elias that was for to come. Then what does he say in the next verse? He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Do you know what Jesus is saying there? A lot of men don't have ears to hear the truth, because God has just stopped them up. Do you have ears to hear? Or do you read that passage, and do you want to put another explanation on Elijah the prophet? Then you can go to Matthew chapter 17, where Jesus teaches the same thing in the first 13 verses of that chapter. John the Baptist fulfilled the prophecy of Elijah the prophet. Why was he called Elijah? Why wasn't he called John? Because it was Malachi talking about him 400 years before he came. The angel told Zacharias why he was Elijah the prophet, prophetically. What did they... What did? What did the angel tell Zacharias about this wild son he was going to have in his old age? He said he's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's why he was called Elijah. And then the angel went on to say he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers exactly fulfilling that little prophecy. Now we just chased a rabbit. We chased it all the way to its hole. We took a club and we beat it. But we've got the rabbit. And the rabbit is the prophecy of the last two verses of the Old Testament saying Elijah the prophet was going to come, were speaking of John the Baptist. Right. And Jesus told us that in Matthew 11. Jesus told us that in Matthew 17. But He said, If ye will receive it, because most won't, and if you have ears to hear it, because most don't. Then, in this chapter, after explaining that, let us come to verse 25. Matthew 11:25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight." All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Truth is by the revelation of God. God changes our hearts so that we will receive truth. God opens our ears so that we can hear truth. And it is according to the good pleasure of God in heaven. He hides these things from the wise and prudent. The wise and prudent of our generation, the seminary professors, the THDs, the book writers, do not believe that John the Baptist fulfilled the prophecy of Elijah the prophet. The wise and prudent have been blinded by the God of heaven to recognize one of the simplest fulfillments in the Word of God. But He's revealed it to babes. What causes us to believe it? Because Jesus said it. And that is good enough for us. Amen. Because the Bible has it that is good enough for us. We don't care what all the learned men of, in all the world might say. We'll believe God over all of them. Right. Listen. So professors in universities also teach evolution. The highest levels of our government believe in abortion. Abortion. They'll kill babies, but they won't kill murderers. Listen, something's wrong and rotten somewhere, and it's not in Denmark. It's right here in America. Education does not lead to truth. God's mercy leads to truth. And babes can understand the truth of God's Word. And here is the Lord Jesus Christ reflecting on what He has said about John the Baptist, reflecting on why some of the cities that He went to did not receive Him at all, and saying, Father... I see something, and for that that I see, I thank Thee, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hid these things from the wise and prudent. Men who think they know the Word of God, You've blinded them so they cannot know it. And babes that simply trust You at Your Word, You've shown them the truth of Your Gospel. Listen, every child and every woman and every man here, you don't need to worry about your educational level. You don't need to worry about your IQ. You need to worry about your faith. Do you believe the Bible? Our God is making foolish the wisdom of this world with His truth. John the Baptist is 100% the final, complete, and total fulfillment of Malachi 4, 5, and 6. There is not the smallest room or sliver of a secondary meaning for Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Jesus said, this is he that was to come. And that is enough. He fulfilled every aspect of Malachi 4, 5, and 6. The great and dreadful day of the Lord that John preceded was the wiping out of the city of Jerusalem, which the New Testament spoke of over and over and over again, because it was the greatest event yet to happen to the nation of Israel. And John came, and everyone that believed the preaching of John and believed the preaching of Jesus was saved from that destruction. All of it is fulfilled. And what would the Lord say about that? He would say, Father in heaven, you have revealed it to little babes. My little disciples that I've picked, fishermen by trade, rather ignorant of letters, they didn't spend long in school and they certainly didn't make it to seminary, They went to a technical college for fishing lessons only. You've shown them the truth of your word and you've shut off everyone else. The point being right here, can we be puffed up about any truth that we have or believe that we have? Not at all. Because if we have any truth, it's because God revealed it to us. And do you know why He revealed it to us? Because He considered us babes. Not wise and prudent. And we want to thank Him for all that. And we want to continue to be babes. When we pray, we want to pray and be His babes. We want to pray like Solomon and say, Lord, I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. Give me a wise and understanding heart so that I can know the things that You've given us. And you know what the Lord will do with a prayer like that? It says the Lord loved that prayer. Amen. And so He gave Solomon all the wisdom. And he gave Solomon riches and honor and a long life to boot because he loved that prayer request. Eger had that kind of a prayer. We want to have that kind of a prayer. Right. Most Americans grow up and spend their lives believing lies. Most. Right. If, we, if we would think about it soberly, one day, one day spent exerting our efforts, applying our minds allowing the passion of our hearts to be in that day, but going through a whole day, just one day, 24 hours, 1,440 minutes, for us to go through a whole day believing a lie, that's a terrible thing. No wonder Agar prayed, save me from vanity and from lies. To waste a day believing a lie. Children, we want the truth. We want the truth in every area of life. We want the truth in every area of Scripture that God will show us. We want to pray for it, we want to dig for it, we want to read and study for it. And we want to defend it when God gives it to us. And we never want to apologize for it. It's the truth of God. To waste one day. And most men in this world waste their entire lives. Think about being a Catholic. And there's 1.1 billion of them. They've prayed to Mary all their lives. They've prayed to saints all their lives. They've trusted the Pope all their life, and then they die and meet the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. And let me tell you something. Mary's not going to be there to help them, and the Pope isn't going to be there to help them, and the saints aren't going to be there to help them. They're going to meet the living God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then what will they do? They will have lived their whole lives in a lie. It's a terrible thing. They can pray Hail Mary, Mother of God, all they want to at that point. It will be blasphemy in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust me, they won't be praying for her. And where will the popes be then? They won't be behind the pearly gates. They won't even be near the pearly gates, not based on what the Bible tells us. But see, we live in a society where what I just said was terrible. Terrible. For us to make fun of another religion is just terrible. Oh, we shouldn't do that. Well, listen, brethren, Elijah did it, and Jesus did it, and John the Baptist did it, and Paul loved to do it, and so we're going to do it because we want to stand on the Word of God. It's not because we're great, smart, intellectual, or we've worked harder than anyone else. We're not any of those things. It's because God's had mercy on us. And because He's had mercy on us and shown us His truth, we're going to stand for it. We're going to say it. And we're going to call a lie a lie. And we're going to call the truth the truth. And we need to recognize that. But we need to be thankful for what God has shown us. Can you imagine spending a minute believing a lie? Or a day living a lie? Or wasting your life in a lie? I want you to think about it because we chose that. We chose that in the Garden of Eden. We had a chance. We, we had a chance for truth. We had a perfect world, a perfect marriage, a perfect husband, a perfect wife, and we had the tree of life. We could eat from the tree of life every day. Adam and Eve would have lived forever in a perfect world. But they were offered a lie, and they took the lie, And because they took the lie, look at what's happened to our race. And men continue to choose lies over truth because now we're depraved. Now we have hearts that are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Our father Adam didn't have a heart like that. Our mother Eve didn't have a heart like that. But they chose a lie. What did that lie do? One lie. One lie from the devil to our first parents. What was a perfectly innocent and virtuous marriage where neither of them were clothed, they both instantly had shame and guilt and fear and had to cover their bodies up. What, the relationship they had had with God, walking with Him in the cool of the garden, now they're hiding in the trees of the garden out of fear of God. Let's keep going. They were going to live forever. Now they died. They were going to have offspring that would have been, had access to the tree of life. Now they didn't and those children died. Those children come into this world with a depraved heart. They speak lies as soon as they're born, the Bible tells us. Right. And then we go to hell because of one lie. One lie in the Garden of Eden cost marriage, cost a wonderful intimate relationship with God, cost our lives, and cost our eternity if it were not for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. And there is plenteous grace Amen. where Jesus Christ is. But look at the terrible consequences of one lie. Our world has chosen a lie in the beginning, and so we are now the kingdom of this world. The devil is the prince of the power of the air, and he misleads the human race in lie after lie after lie. It breaks up marriages. It breaks up homes. It terrifies our souls. It leaves us dysfunctional, pain, lonely, and in trouble. And it comes from lies. Because there are true answers for every one of those situations that can give us happiness, fulfillment, function, joy, peace, hope. And then we get to go to heaven. It's the difference between truth and lies. It's what I'm trying to preach to you this morning and this evening. For you to love the truth, to seek the truth, to defend the truth. And Jesus Christ has brought us the truth. And we just read in Matthew 11 that he knew where it came from. It came from the precious choice of God to have mercy on us. Men, men waste their lives in lies. Every lie since the Garden of Eden causes confusion. It causes loss. It causes pain. It causes trouble and judgment. Do you hate every lie this morning? Do you hate every lie? And how do we know what is truth and what is a lie? By the precious Word of God He's given us. We are Bible Christians. It is that simple. We are Bible Christians. Our Christianity is dependent entirely upon the Bible. Our Christianity is not dependent upon what Grandpa and Grandma did before us. It's not dependent upon any books written by men. It's not dependent upon tradition. It's not dependent upon what feels good. It doesn't depend upon what the world calls Christianity. It depends upon the Bible. This is how we tell a lie from the truth. We have it in, in writing. Thank you, Lord. Do you know what he would tell us in 2 Peter chapter 1? What Peter would tell us? Peter would tell us, the word of God is more sure than hearing God's voice from heaven in the presence of Jesus Christ, Moses, Elijah, and James and John. Because Peter went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, heard God's voice from heaven, wrote about it in 2 Peter chapter 1, and then he said, We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. But holy men of God spake as they were moved with the Holy Ghost. We have a more sure word of prophecy to know truth from error. And it's the Word of God. If I were to get up this morning and tell you what a dream I had last night, how could you try that dream? You'd have to try it by the Word of God. And if I said anything outside the Word of God, then you would know it was a lie. I was listening to the wrong spirit. We try everything by the Word of God. And why waste my time with a a dream when the Bible tells us about itself that it is sufficient to make the man of God perfect, truly furnished unto all good works, we don't need any more revelation because all we need is right here in the Word of God. The Bible is sufficient. It's the perfect thing that was to come and it is come and we have it. It's the perfect law of liberty. It's the more sure word of prophecy. It's perfect converting the soul. It's the Word of God. I hope you love it this morning. Deception is a terrible thing. Do you know what deception is? It means believing a lie and thinking it's the truth. That is a hor That is a horrible thought. But do you know, who does, you know who tells you the most lies? Don't get it. Don't get hurt. You lie to yourself more than anyone else does. You tell yourself, "I can get away with this little sin. It's not going to bother anything. The Lord's going to overlook this. He loves me. I'm doing a lot of things right in my life. This little one's not going to bother him too much. Surely I can confess it tomorrow." Oh, you just told yourself about ten lies. That's a bunch. I'll just leave that sentence alone. That's a lie. That's a lie. We're good at it. You know what the Bible says? The heart is deceitful above all things. Now, is that that an exaggeration by the Lord? Or is He really getting down and telling us how rotten we are? The heart is deceitful above all things. Now, when when I see all things, I think about the devil. You mean I'm worse than the devil? Well, he says your heart is deceitful above all things. I say it couldn't be worse than the Democrats. Well, your heart is deceitful above all things. And I'm sorry for any Democrats here. It doesn't matter. Republicans tell just as many. It doesn't matter. Your heart is deceitful. We lie to ourselves. We want to measure everything with the Word of God and truth. It'd be, it'd be terrible for that Catholic to meet the Lord Jesus Christ and to have spent a life worshiping in a church that is called the Great Whore in Revelation chapter 17. That would be horrible. We don't want to meet the Lord Jesus Christ having wasted one hour of worship by worshiping Him incorrectly. And so we want to keep praying for the Lord to show us what truth we do not see. I want you to turn now to Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44. I have a burden right now to make fun of false religion a little more. And I hope you'll allow me to relieve myself of my burden. Isaiah 44. Now when we read Psalm 115 earlier this morning, the heathen said to the worshipers of the true God, where is now their God? Because they looked around and couldn't see any statues. (coughs) Think about the tabernacle of Israel. Did it have an altar? Mm -hmm. But did it have an idol? No. No. Did they offer sacrifices every day? Morning? Evening? And a whole lot in between? But was there an idol? No. Was there a candlestick? Yep. Yeah. Was there a place where angels were supposedly around where God came? Yeah, the cherubim above the Ark of the Covenant. But was there an idol to God there? Yeah. Had He said, don't make any, don't make any graven images at all? Did He say that? Yes. And so they said, where is now their God? And so we had the answer in Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. Right. You can't see Him because our God is in the heavens. He's made the heavens and the earth, and he's done everything according to his own pleasure. And then the psalmist went on to make fun of false gods. They're made by the hands of men. They have eyes, but they can't see. But the eyes of our Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Isn't that wonderful? They have mouths, but they speak not. But our Lord speaks peace to us every day of our lives. It's Wonderful. And so the Lord made fun of... Of gods, But I'm going to read a lengthy passage to you now, and I need you to pay attention. I need you to follow in the Word of God and realize this is written by the God of the Bible, making fun of idol worshipers. And the reason it's important is for you to grasp how dangerous it is if you ever believe a lie. Right. If God does not save you by reaching forth His mighty right arm and delivering you from a lie, you will believe it your entire life and then die. Please, this is a lengthy reading. I'll read it as well as I can. I hope that you'll follow along and see God making fun of idol worshipers. And then we come to the terrible conclusion where he explains it. Right. Isaiah 44, beginning at verse 9. Isaiah 44, beginning at verse 9. They that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and their delectable things shall not profit, and they are their own witnesses. They see not, nor know, that they may be ashamed. Who hath formed a god, or molten a graven image, that he is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed, and the workmen, they are of men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear, and they shall be ashamed together. The smith with the tongs both worketh in the coals, and fashioneth it with hammers, and worketh it with the strength of his arms. Yea, he is hungry, and his strength faileth. He drinketh no water, and is faint. The carpenter stretcheth out his rule. He marketh it out with a line. He fitteth it with planes, and he marketh it out with the compass, and maketh it after the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He heweth him down cedars, and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash, and the rain doth nourish it. Then shall it be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth it, and baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god, and worshipeth it. He maketh it a graven image, and falleth down thereto. He burneth part thereof in the fire. With part thereof he eateth flesh. He roasteth roast, and is satisfied. Yea, he warmeth himself, and saith, Ah, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the residue thereof he maketh a god, even his graven image. He falleth down unto it, and worshipeth it, and prayeth unto it, and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my God. They have not known nor understood. For he hath shut their eyes that they cannot see, and their hearts that they cannot understand. And none considereth in his heart. Neither is there knowledge nor understanding to say. I have burned part of it in the fire. Yea, also I have baked bread upon the coals thereof. I have roasted flesh and eaten it. And shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stock of a tree? He feedeth on ashes. A deceived heart hath turned him aside, that he cannot deliver his soul "...nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Thus saith the Lord." That is the Word of God. There's a lie in my right hand, and I don't even know it, and I can't figure it out. "...None considereth, or reasons in his heart, I cut down a tree, I used a third of it to cook my food, I used another third of it to warm myself." And then because I had some leftover, called the residue here, because I had some leftover wood, I made a god and I'm falling down and worshiping it and praying to it for it to deliver me. And the Bible says, why couldn't he figure it out? Because God has blinded his eyes that he cannot see how stupid of a thing he's doing. And do you know what? We would all be there if it weren't for the grace of God. Here's the arrangement God made with men after the Garden of Eden. He showed in the heavens the glory of God. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Romans chapter 1 says, so that they are without excuse. There is enough evidence in the created heavens to know there's a God. You look at the sun, the moon, and the stars, and you look at all that takes place in the heavens, and the beauty of it, and the vastness of it, you know there's a God. But what did they do when they had that knowledge that there was a God? They made images like unto corruptible man. Romans chapter 1. And because they would not accept the eternal Godhead and power of the God of heaven, God blinded their eyes so that they could not see. And this is how men are left in this world. Right. They are they burn part of a, of a log to heat their food, part to warm themselves. And then because they have some leftover wood... They fashion it themselves. They're so weak that they get faint themselves because they didn't have enough to drink. They get tired because they didn't have enough to eat. And yet when they get this thing crafted and it looks like a man, they fall down and worship it. He feedeth on ashes. God would say about those men, they feed on ashes. They do not know they have a lie in their right hand. I want to tell you, I want to tell you that if it wasn't for the grace of God we would be practicing some lie this morning. And if we are practicing some lie outside of our knowledge right now, we want to beg God to have mercy upon us and show it to us and we will turn from our foolish and wicked ways to follow Him more perfectly. If there is anything we are not doing that is taught in the Bible, we want to end that practice and start anew. We are not ashamed to say that we were wrong. We've done it before and we'll do it again if God will show us the truth but I want you to know that lies are held in the hands of men and they cannot deliver themselves. Look at that verse 20. He feedeth on ashes. A deceived heart hath turned him aside that he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? He can't say it because he can't see it. Come to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Don't try to tell me that's just the Old Testament because the danger is just as great in the New Testament. today's world, the year 2005, there are still lots of idol worshipers in the world. There's still a billion Hindu polytheists who worship their thousands of deities. There's still ancestor worship by a billion plus. There's Mary and saint worship. And there's other foolish lies. But do you know what? In our nation, there's a growing denomination, if you'll allow me to call it that, of agnostics and atheists that say there is no God. Now that's a big lie. The fool hath said in his heart there is no God. But listen, we've got a rising number of admitted pagans and admitted agnostics and atheists in our country. God didn't send me to be a prophet but to preach His Word. But if we are not in the little season of Satan, loose before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are awfully close to it. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Keeping in mind what we read from Isaiah 44. Verse 23. 2 Timothy 2.23. This is instruction for a minister. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender stripes, Foolish and unlearned questions don't lead you to truth. Wise and studied questions lead toward truth. Arguing and striving about words to no profit does not lead toward truth. And so the man of God is warned about wasting his time entertaining people with foolish questions. So we come to verse 24. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. If God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. This is the state of men, apart from the grace of God. They are held captive by the devil, and they are taken captive by him at his will. And God must grant repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, Or they'll never see it. There is no method. There is no speech. There is no great sermon that any man can ever preach to deliver a man from the power of the devil. God must grant repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And it is God's peradventure whether He does it or not. Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. And I want you to know you're sitting here this morning is because God took pleasure... In granting you repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and causing you to be delivered from the snare of the devil because you were taken captive by him at his will as much as any. It is by the grace of God. He feedeth on ashes. His soul cannot deliver himself. He has a lie in his right hand. And we would all have a lie in our right hand if God did not open our eyes, ears, and heart to the truth and give us repentance to acknowledge it. And so we bless and we praise His holy name for it. You're in 2 Timothy chapter 2. A terrible prophecy takes up in verse 1 of chapter 3. What do I mean by terrible? Because it describes a terrible state of Christianity. And it runs from verse 1 of chapter 3, and I will never tire, and I hope you will never tire because I'm not going to change, of reminding you about this prophecy. Everyone wants to know what prophecies are being fulfilled today in America. This is the prophecy being fulfilled today in America. It runs from verse 1 of chapter 3 to verse 5 of chapter 4. It's 22 verses long. And it describes the perilous times of the last days in verse 1. It describes a brand of Christianity where men would compromise and turn away from the truth They no longer want to hear the truth of the Word of God. They want to be entertained. They want fables. They want to feel good when they go to church. They want to get lively, but they don't want to hear the words of God anymore. And it's happening in our country everywhere we turn. Here's what it says. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. This is Paul writing to Timothy to warn him and to warn us Of a change in Christianity. This is not the world. The world never endured sound doctrine. These are Christians. These are Christian churches. 2 Timothy 4 verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. I'm tired of preaching. He preaches too long. His sermons are too boring. His sermons are too dry. All He does is keep turning us to different places in the Bible. I'm tired of preaching. That church down the road, do you know why they're growing? They don't waste time on preaching. They're all in there worshiping the Lord. Well, how do you worship the Lord without the Word of God? Look at what it says is going to happen. And we live in these times. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts, They're letting that deceitful heart in them figure out what they want to hear when they go to church. They want to be entertained. They want fables. They want feelings. They want anything, but don't give me the Word of God. After their own lust, shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They don't want to hear doctrine. They want to have something that will scratch their ears and make them feel good. This is a warning in the Bible, and we're living in the fulfillment of it. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth. Look at what the Bible says. They shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. God calls them fables. If it's not the truth, then it's a fable. It's a, it's a nursery rhyme. It's mother goose. It's wrong. It's profane and vain babblings. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Verses 20 and 21. And this is what is happening in our generation. When I was a little boy, and I'm not that old. All you young people think I am. You older ones still think I'm a twerp. But when I was a little boy, I remember the kind of preaching that was done then compared to the preaching that's done now, and there's a drastic difference, and I'm not that old. Men used to open the Word of God and thunder out of pulpits, thus saith the Lord. And that's what we need. But it's very few and far between anymore in this country. And here is the warning. We look at those two verses and we say, that is being fulfilled right in front of our eyes. The time will come. Do you want Bible prophecy? Here's Bible prophecy. The time will come. Well, we're at that time and we can look and see this is being fulfilled in our lifetimes. And we have got to stand against it. Well, how do we stand against it? Back up one verse to verse 2 of chapter 4. There's the job description of a minister is given. And it doesn't say get a big praise band. And it doesn't say have big parties for the young people. What does it say in 2 Timothy 4.2 that we need to do? Preach the Word. That is the cure. Preach the Word. Be instant. In season, out of season. To be instant is to be insistent. It's to be pressing. It's to be urgent upon people. And look what it says. In season and out of season. You know, ministers get in the pulpit and they look out and they they realize their topic for the day and they see the looks and the faces of their hearers and they realize it's not hunting season today. Uh, This subject that I have is out of season today. But what does the Word of God say? Does a minister ever get in the pulpit, look at the faces of his people and say, I better not preach that one? No! Press it on them. Right. Be instant, in season, and out of season. Whether the people want to hear it or not, preach the truth. Preach the word. Yeah. Be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all long suffering and doctrine. Notice it doesn't say comfort, coddle, and stroke. It says reprove, it says to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. That's what we need to do with the Word of God. Isn't it simple enough? And we live in the time. We live in this time. And I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I'm less than nothing. And all of you know that I'm less than nothing. But I'll tell you one thing I want to be. By the grace of God. I want to be a voice in the wilderness of 2005. And I don't care how many hearers there are. But we're going to preach the Word. And we're going to reprove. And we're going to rebuke. And we're going to exhort. And I want to do that. And I believe you want that, and I believe you want to help us do that, and we want to get that website out there where there's a whole lot of reproving, rebuking, and exhorting. We're not, God didn't send us to comfort, coddle, and stroke. He sent us to reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort. And this is with the truth of God. Now, how important, how important was this kind of a ministry? Back up to verse 1. What does it say there? Look at the apostle Paul in a private letter. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. Wow! That's in a private letter. Why would Paul write Timothy such strong language and drop so many names? Timothy, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who's coming to judge the quick and the dead and His appearing in His kingdom, that you preach the Word and that you don't back down or compromise when men no longer want sound doctrine, but they want fables to scratch their itching ears. Don't you change, Timothy. This is most serious. This is why truth is the subject for today. Truth. There is a right way to worship God. And I do not want any of you to wake up in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ or on your deathbed and realize that your life has been lived believing a lie. And I don't want that. Now, what if we keep backing up? This is a 22-verse prophecy about our generation. What if we keep backing up? We find the cure. It's in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3. I I've searched far and wide on the Internet, and I have. I do not know. We are nothing. We are less than nothing. I do not know of anyone who sees these 22 verses as one prophetic lesson for our day. And these 22 verses are one lesson. There is no division in these 22 verses. If we back up, from verse 1 of chapter 4 into the last two verses of chapter 3, we have the cure for the perilous times of the last days. There's where Paul told Timothy all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Yes. Timothy, they're going to invent all sorts of things in these perilous times of the last days, but you stick with the Word of God. Back up to verse 15. Timothy, it's the same Bible you've known since you were a little child because your mother and your grandmother taught you the Holy Scriptures. 3.15 Verse 14 I've taught you and I expect you to continue in the things that I have taught you. Back up to verse 13 Evil seducers shall wax worse and worse. Are the liars on television getting worse and worse every day when you click on a religious channel and see some of those men creating doctrines on the run? Is it terrible? Right. And we're told that it would happen. You back up to verse 12. All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You try to live a holy life today and men will despise you for it. You try to be good, holy, and virtuous and live a life by the Bible and men will make fun of you. And do you know what kind of men make fun of you the most? Christian people. Why are you so strict? You're a legalist. That's ridiculous. God doesn't care about details. Oh, yes, he does. And so you get into trouble in verse 12. And you just keep backing up. Look at verses 6 and 7. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Ministers have got to go after the men. Ministers have to go after the men. Paul warned Timothy about a breed of Christian teachers that would emphasize women over the men. They would creep into houses to subvert women. We want to emphasize men because what does the Bible teach us ought to be happening in a home? Fathers. This is what it says. I believe it. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. What's the Lord's ideal for a family? The father is a God-fearing man who commands his household after him, like Abraham. God said of Abraham, I know him, that he will command his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. Men like Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And what I'm saying to you right now is almost hard to grasp because it's almost a lost thing in America. There's very few godly men left that are the kind of godly husbands and the kind of godly fathers that they ought to be. And that's the foundation for a church. The Bible says if a woman will learn anything, let her ask her husband at home. But do you know what? Most women couldn't get an answer if they asked their husbands at home. And so teachers will prey on them. When I see the television pan the audiences on some of these television programs where they're begging money from widows, I see that camera going back and forth, and I look at that audience and it's pretty easy to tell. It's 80% female. And they're the ones giving their money for some man to live in a six million dollar mansion and have his own jet, Right there. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and leave captive silly women. Silly women just means they're vulnerable and defenseless and they need a protector and they don't have one. The silly doesn't mean they cackle or laugh all the time. Silly in the King James Bible in this context means they're defenseless and vulnerable and they need help and they don't get it. ...from these men that prey on them. They're ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. We're talking about truth. Verse 7 says they're ever learning. They're going to this seminar. They're going to that seminar. They're getting this videotape. They're listening to this audio tape. They're listening to this radio program. Lots of learning. But look what it says. Never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Do you know what those women need? Do you know what their husbands need? They need the Word of God preached. They need sound doctrine preached from pulpits. And that is the cure for the perilous times of the last days... These people in the last days, verse 5 tells us, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. They're lovers of pleasures, according to verse 4. More than they are lovers of God. And that is true of most Christians today. And that is not something we want to have true in our lives. We want to hold to the truth. And the truth makes a division between us and others. We're Baptists. And when we say Baptists, Baptist isn't even in our name. But when we say Baptists, we mean... We bury, by immersion, a believer in water and raise them up again to show a picture of the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if we take a stand on the truth of baptism, that is going to cut us off from 95% of the rest of those that are called Christians in this country. Because what's called Christian in this country includes Catholics, Methodists, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, and Lutherans, and they all sprinkle babies. So just the doctrine of baptism cuts us off from 95% of them. But if we're going to stand for the truth of God's Word, is there any doubt about it in the Bible? Not a doubt. John the Baptist took Jesus down to the water. John the Baptist baptized near to Anan, in Anan near to Salem, because it says there was much water there. Well, what did he need much water for? All you need is a canteen if you're going to sprinkle on their foreheads. So just baptism cuts us off. But then, what about the doctrine of salvation? Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. That there is a God in heaven that blinds some men and opens the eyes of other men, that grants repentance to the acknowledging of the truth to some and doesn't to others, that's going to divide us from even more. Now we're down to 2%. Then we have the holidays. We look in the Bible and God says He doesn't want us to be in association with the Roman Catholic whore of Revelation 17 or false holidays of that church. And to, and to come out from among them. And if we do that, we cut off another 1%. And so now we're getting smaller and smaller in those that want to follow the truth. it's We're not changing. We're holding to the Bible. They're changing. 200 years ago, no one in this country celebrated Christmas. It was against the law. Because everyone knew it was a Roman Catholic holiday. Look it up in any encyclopedia. Look it up anywhere you wish. The first state in this country to make Christmas a holiday was Alabama in 1836. This country started in 1776. In Puritan New England, a hundred years before that, you'd be fined if you didn't show up for work on December 25th because they knew if you weren't at work on December 25th, you were at home doing something you weren't supposed to and that was keeping that popish holiday. And see, they think that we're crazy. We haven't changed. We're just holding to the Bible. We can't celebrate the world's holy days, especially when they originated in Rome, which is the great whore of the book of Revelation. We can't do it. So we do that. We're cut off a little bit more. And we have to make a decision. All of a sudden, we've got relatives that don't like us. All of a sudden, we've got neighbors that don't like us. Our children are asked questions at school about what you get for Christmas. And we have all these questions. We have to make this terrible decision. Are we going to hold to the truth of God's word or are we going to give it up? And you know what? Most people, when they come to having to pay a price, they give it up. Jesus said when the seed of the Word is sown, sometimes it falls on stony ground. And it grows up, but it doesn't have deep roots. And as soon as the heat of persecution comes down on that plant, it withers away. We cannot wither away. We're just trying to hold to the Word of God. All those that came before us and gave their lives at the stake, and gave their lives to lions in the lion's den, they did not compromise with Roman holidays. They stood against them and they lost their lives for it. We don't lose our lives, we just have a little bit of embarrassment. The truth of God's Word. Baptism, salvation, holidays, cremation. That terrible document I wrote about why we shouldn't cremate our dead like the Hindus. The Lord Jesus Christ died for our bodies and He's coming back for them. Why should we burn them like a Hindu? And so if we take a stand on the truth of cremation, if we go through the Bible and look at all the points that it does make on how everyone in the Bible took pains to bury their dead... Abraham didn't even have any, he didn't even own any land, but he went and he bought himself a cemetery. He had a family cemetery and he put Sarah there and Isaac went there and Leah went there and Jacob and Joseph was brought over. They had to keep Joseph embalmed for 200 years to bring him and bury him in the land of Canaan. John the Baptist had his head cut off. By the Roman government that was appointed over Judea and still his disciples went and picked up that body. They didn't have the head because the head was gone, but they took that body and they put it in a casket and they put it in the ground. But if we take a position on cremation, more people think that we're crazy and we have to make a decision. Am I going to stand for the truth of God or not? What we use in the Lord's Supper. What we believe about the gifts. What we believe about prophecy. Where we try to take our stand on singing. Everything we do. You know, we try to measure it by the Word of God and it costs us. It costs us friends. It costs us respect. But do we love the truth enough to stand for it? May God help us to, to love the truth and to stand Amen. for it. Let me close with Second Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. What did Jesus Christ say to the woman of Samaria? The Father seeketh such to worship Him. And there are precious few of them today. Jesus said, The Father seeketh men that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. But then when we came to 2 Timothy 4, we had a prophecy telling us that men were not going to want sound doctrine anymore. They aren't going to want to hear God said no to this. God said you have to. They don't want that anymore. They want it itch, their, they want to scratch their itching ears, they want their own lust satisfied, and they're going to turn away from the truth and be turned to fables. We were told that, that was going to happen. Do we want to be the true worshipers that meet the approval of God our Father? You say, that we're so small, we're so small, we can't possibly be true worshipers because God would certainly have more than this. Well, we believe there's other assemblies around the world that are trying to worship God to the light that God's given them and are are true worshipers. But I hope that we'll remember that Noah didn't have a very big church and I think he was a true worshiper. I know he was. I know he was a preacher of righteousness. But his church wasn't very large and it was on a big pontoon boat. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't have very many following him either, but he was a true worshiper. Elijah, after that great performance on Mount Carmel when the Lord dropped the fire, he went and sat under a juniper tree and said, I am the only one left. But he wasn't, was he? What did God say? I've got 7,000 that I've reserved to myself. And we don't know where the other 7,000 are. But we're not going to change anyway, are we? We're just going to hold the word of God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is a description of the man of sin. The man of sin in the Word of God is the line of popes that sit in the temple of God, professing to be God and above God. It's verses 3 and 4 that tell us that. There's much, much more that can be said about that. That's not my point right now. I want to look at verses 9 through 12, which describe the spirit and character of false worship. 9 through 12, even him. "...whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness." Those, Those are four terrible verses. Did you read those four verses? God said, because men would not receive the love of the truth, they did not love the truth that was offered to them because of that, because they loved unrighteousness and sin more than the truth of God's word, He would send them strong delusion to believe a lie that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That is a sober, sober warning. And each one of us should humble ourselves before that passage this morning and say, am I even close to those four verses? Because if we neglect the truth that God has shown us, He will blind us and send us strong delusion to believe a lie. 9, 10, 11, and 12 of Second Thessalonians chapter 2. But those four verses didn't include the church at Thessalonica. Because, do you know what? Let's go to the next verse. What is the word that it starts with? I love the buts of the Bible. Yeah. But. A difference made by the God of heaven. Right. But. Look what it says. But. We. That's Paul and the ministers that were with him to the church of the Thessalonians. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto He calls you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound, brethren, this morning as we close, we are bound to give thanks to God. How often? Always. Thanks to whom? God. Why? Why? Because He chose us from the beginning that we would be sanctified, regenerated, made alive, made holy as objects for God's use and that we would believe the truth instead of sending us strong delusion to believe a lie like the four verses in front of it. This 13th verse says, He chose us to believe the truth and to deliver us from those lies. And we're bound to give Him thanks always for that choice. And it was through Paul's preaching that the church at Thessalonica heard the gospel and obtained the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, part of which is truth and part of which is mercy, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto Thyself give glory for Thy mercy and for Thy truth's sake. Now, because God made that huge difference in verses 9 through 12 and then verses 13 and 14, here's our duty in verse 15. Therefore, what's a therefore Therefore, it's drawing a conclusion from those verses and from that great contrast. Therefore, brethren, stand fast. Stand fast. We think of the word fast as meaning speed. But if you're standing fast, it obviously has nothing to do with speed. It means stand fastened. Fastened down, not moving. Stand fast. Fastened. Stand fastened to what you've been given. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Whatever came from the apostles were to hold it fast. Now, if anybody says, but it says what you have been taught, that's because the New Testament wasn't complete at that point. But everything that the apostles taught that we need was quickly committed to writing. And all of it is in writing. And that's why it says the Holy Scriptures are more sure than God's voice from heaven. Amen. Right. So what do we get from this today? Truth is a blessing from heaven. Right. Truth is the only way to live. Truth is the only way to worship God. It's, all that he'll, it's the only way of worship that he'll accept. We should thank God for all truth. He did not give it to us because we're wise and prudent. He gave it to us because we're babes. He chose to give it to us before the world began by sanctifying us by the Holy Spirit and then sending the gospel to prepared hearts, prepared ears, prepared eyes, so that we would believe it. We're to give Him thanks for it always. We're bound to do it. And then we want to stand fast and hold the apostolic traditions of the faith once delivered to the saints and not move away from it. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. And may every one of you be faithful to the truth of the Gospel.